The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So turn to Genesis chapter 19. Uh, today's sermon and next couple of weeks are going to be PG-13. So if you need to remove young ones, we totally understand. This week was Halloween, so we don't want to scare your children again. So as you turn to Genesis 19, we're entering into some heavy territory in the story of Abraham, Lot, and his family. And uh, last week in Genesis 18, we saw that God tells Abraham he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham tries to negotiate with God and talk God out of that. And because his nephew Lot lives there in Sodom. Now, when you hear the names Sodom and Gomorrah, what do you think about? What are some of the places you think about in our country today? First, you might think of Vegas, the most obvious one. You might think of places like uh, New York, New Orleans, San Francisco. If you're an Aggie, you might say Austin, maybe. But there are some cities throughout the world that are not household names, and I read about one this past week. I don't want to say where this is. I don't want to spark your curiosity. But I read about this place in Asia where, man, it was hard to read what takes place in in this city with the child exploitation and the sex industry and the human trafficking that goes on in this place, when you read stuff like this, your stomach just turns. And you start asking questions. We begin asking questions like this. How can a good God allow evil and suffering? If you've ever seen or heard about those kinds of issues, you start to ask these kinds of questions. How can a good God allow this kind of evil and suffering? And we begin to feel the outcry that we hear about in Genesis chapter 18, and we ask questions like, where's God in the midst of all of this depravity? But sometimes the same people will ask this question, how can a good God be wrathful against sin? And you see that we can't, we can't have both questions, because these questions, they collide. And we're going to see how they collide in this passage, Genesis 19. As Chase said last week, we serve a just and holy God who always does what is right. And so in Genesis chapter 18, last week, we saw how uh, Abraham is negotiating with God and asking, calling God to account, saying, God, how can you destroy this place, these, these places, Sodom and Gomorrah? And he begins to negotiate with God and try to talk God out of it. And then God says, you know, the whole negotiation thing. If you find this many people, this many, and, and eventually he realizes I can't even find 10 righteous people. So God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And now these three angels, so one of the angels goes to Gomorrah, and then two angels come to Sodom. Look at with me in verse 1 of chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. So why is Lot at the city gate? Well, he's become a city leader at this point. Uh, he was, many think that he's become a judge or an elder. Some might even say the mayor of Sodom, as hard as it is for that, for us to believe that. And this really shouldn't surprise us because Lot has been on this, this pathway, this trajectory toward this point. 
Uh, we, we know that in Genesis 13, Lot sets up his tent close to Sodom. In Genesis 14, he's now dwelling in Sodom. And now he's risen up through the ranks of the city, and now he is in a place of power and influence in that city. Lot has lived this, this life of compromise, probably to get him to where he is. So what Lot offers these men might seem strange to us, but was not uh, uncommon back then. Most of us don't sit out on I-35 looking for strangers to come to our house and stay, right? But this kind of hospitality was the expectation at that time and in that day, but these men reject it. They say, no thanks, we'll stay in the town square. Now at that time, in most places, a city was safer than the open country. A traveler would prefer someone's house to the city square, but things were a little bit different in Sodom. Sodom had a reputation. And these angels, these men, they knew what happened in Sodom. So them saying they want to stay in the city square might sound like they're trying to live dangerous, but really they're trying to play it safe. Because if they enter into a wicked city and someone says, hey, come stay at my house, they're thinking, no, 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 we, we know what happens in Sodom. We're not going to stay in anybody's house. We're going to take our chances in the town square. And so there they are, talking to Lot. And Lot says, come to my house. And they say, no, we'll take our chances in the street. And so Lot begins to press them strongly and saying, no, listen, trust me. You don't, you don't want to stay in the city square. This is Sodom. And in most places, that'd be the place of safety, but in Sodom, it was the place of danger. So they, of course, relent. They go to Lot's house, and Lot makes them a meal. And this is what hospitality looked like in that day. If you took someone in, you protected them, even if it meant giving up your own life. This still happens in some places today. You may have seen, read the book, or seen the movie Lone Survivor, starring Mark Wahlberg as Marcus Luttrell. This is the real-life Marcus Luttrell on the left. And he was a Navy SEAL, and he was in a firefight in Afghanistan, Taliban-controlled, and he and his uh, buddies were in his firefight, and all of his other guys got killed, and he was the only guy left standing. And he was on the run. He was hiding out for days. And finally, he, a, an Afghan farmer finds him and brings him into his house. And what's strange is in Afghanistan, there's this, there's this hospitality code that's called Pashtunwali. Can you say that? Pashtunwali. That wasn't a very good effort on your part, but we'll let that pass. But there's this hospitality code in Afghanistan that says even if a stranger who's there occupying your country and, and they're going against the, the Taliban, the, the controlling forces of that area, you are supposed to take that person in and show them hospitality and protect them, even if it means giving up your own life. So that's what the man did. And he protected him. And he saved his life. And as, I think this, this sort of puts our, our idea of hospitality to shame, wouldn't you say? We think of that hospitality as being, you know, someone had a baby and I made him brownies. That's hospitality. No, but this is a different kind of, this is ancient hospitality where you protect someone if it means giving up your own life. 
You sacrifice it. So as we see, Lot's going to get part of this right, but he's going to fail miserably because his virtue gets twisted up with vice. Look at verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him, and he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Now we know why Lot was so adamant that they stay at his house. What a, what a horrific and terrifying scene. This is, this is late at night when the men should be at home. The little kids should be asleep. And dads should be tucking their kids into bed. But this, these men, they're on the prowl. And it's not just the men. It says even the youth are part of this mob. And I don't have to tell you this, but I know you understand, this is not the first time this has happened in Sodom. We see from this that the older generation in this wicked, deplorable city, they've taught the youth, of this, the young men of the city, how to live these things out. This is not the first time this has ever happened in Sodom. There is no mystery what this mob wants to do to these men. This is, this is sexual assault. And so Lot goes outside and he shuts the door behind him and he begins to plead, don't act so wickedly. Now, so far, Lot has done the right thing. He's taken these men in. He's protecting them. And if he followed the hospitality of the day, he would have stood between this mob and these men. And he would have said, you're going to have to kill me to get to these men. But watch what he does instead in verse 8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Just when you think things couldn't get any worse, For those of you that have kids, I know that we can't, we can't fathom a scenario where someone comes to our house trying to harm someone, some guests in our house, and to keep them from doing that, we would offer up our kids? How, how wicked and how deplorable would we need to be to do such a thing? So up to this point, Lot stands in contrast to the men of Sodom. 
He meets these men at the gate. He invites them in. He boldly goes outside, pleads with the mob, and now, and now this? Instead of offering his own life to protect the men, he offers, us his, he offers them his daughters? There are some writers who say that he might be bluffing. Some think he's saying this but doesn't really mean it. That he knows the men of the city, he knows their appetites, he knows they're going to reject this offer. I personally think that it's a legitimate offer. Because if it wasn't a legitimate offer, what was he trying to accomplish by making the offer? As you'll see in two weeks in Genesis 19, the rest of the story, I think we see some pretty deplorable things that have already been happening in his family. And so I think, I think the offer is a legitimate offer. And to make things even worse, verse 14 tells us that his daughters were engaged to be married. And since the passage tells us that all the men of the city are outside Lot's door, there's a good chance his future sons-in-law we're a part of this mob. I mean, what an awful scene. Also, in that time, if an engaged woman was assaulted, the perpetrator was put to death. So this might explain how it is that, that Lot's daughters have never known a man and that they live in this awful place called Sodom, because in that day, even, even the ancient pagan cities, they had some rules. So you weren't to touch a woman that was betrothed to someone else. That might be how they've stayed pure. But then Lot offers up his daughters to these men. It's just an awful, awful scene. Lot has this twisted sense of virtue And this is what happens whenever we allow the culture to form us. Our virtue gets twisted up with vice. So Lot is conflicted. He places the virtue of hospitality over the, the virtue of protecting his own family. What we see Lot do is he is using sex to preserve himself. And you'll see later on in the chapter that his daughter's use sex to preserve themselves. Where did they learn that from? They learned it from dad. Let's read verse 9. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great. So they wore themselves out, groping for the door. So now these men, they turn on Lot And they're saying, this guy isn't even from here. And look at him judging us. 
Who are you to judge us, Lot? So in our world today, what is the most misquoted passage in the whole of Scripture? Which what, you know what it is. What is it? Do not judge. It's Matthew 7.1. These guys are quoting Matthew 7.1 before Jesus spoke the words. Who are you to judge, Lot? Lot, you just, you just offered us your daughters. And you're going to judge us and say, don't act so wickedly. Lot has lost all the moral high ground. He has no leg to stand on as he lectures these men. So if this were a movie, this is where the scene gets most intense. While they're threatening him outside, these angels reach outside. They grab Lot by the bathrobe, and they pull him back inside the room. And the angels then strike all the men outside with blindness. But watch what happens. They continue groping for the door. They're blind, and they don't even care. Their, their physical blindness is just an extension of their Spiritual blindness. They're so blind spiritually, they don't even care about physical blindness. I think this is a warning to us. Sometimes you and I, get we get so steeped in sin, and God might bring about a judgment that is debilitating to us, and yet we're still, we're still groping for the door. Left to our own devices, this is us. And even the present judgment that we're experiencing is not enough to make us stop. And so we're, we're still groping at sin and trying to find a way through. Let's look down at verse 12. Then the men, so this is the angels now, the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. For he, But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So what do we do with this story? Well, there are many directions that we could go here, and we're going to do all of them. So we're going to be here till 3 o'clock today. Now, some might read this, this story, and they say things like, you see, this is, why, this is why Christians should never move to the big sinful city. Just keep yourselves pure. We should, we should all start a commune out in the country where we grow our own food and make our own clothes. I know a place for sale in Waco. Let's go. Some Christians take this passage, I think, and try to make it about... Here's why you shouldn't move to city X and try to influence the culture there because it's not going to go well for you. And listen, you can make some application in that direction, but I love this statement from Warren Wearsby. He says, Lot's heart was in Sodom long before his body arrived there. Worldliness is not a matter of geography, but of heart attitude. You see, there are plenty of examples of God using people to influence culture. There's Joseph in Egypt, there's Daniel in Babylon, there's Esther in Persia, there's Paul in Athens. So I don't think the application is, you see, you shouldn't try to influence a culture because the culture is going to influence you. It does happen that way sometimes. 
And there are some times to get out. But with Lot, instead of influencing the culture, he allowed the culture to influence him. But his heart was on this pathway already long before he arrived in Sodom. So there is a time to get out if we're being influenced more than we're influencing. So I don't think we look only at, you see, this is why you shouldn't go to a place where there's great need, because we know that God's called us to live on mission. Some Christians read this passage, and they want to talk about just one thing, just one particular sin, and it's the sin of homosexuality. Before we get into this topic, I don't have time to give this full treatment today, but you can go back and listen to a message entitled Sexuality Broken in our Disconnected series back in the spring. We dealt with this topic in more detail. But we're not, a, we're not afraid to call sin, sin. But we cannot elevate some sexual sins over others because God takes all sexual sin seriously. I think you and I tend to elevate the sins we don't struggle with. There is this uh, Christian blog a Christian satire website called Babylon B. And I love this graphic. The relative badness of sin, the ones I struggle with, not that bad. The ones everyone else struggles with, they're way up there, right? This is how most of us look at our own sin versus other people's sin. We tend to elevate the things that we don't struggle with. So some might read the story, and only want to talk about the sins that are out there in our culture. They might even say that the sin of homosexuality was the primary reason why God destroyed Sodom. And I don't think we can say it was the primary reason why. And here's why. Because the sin of homosexuality was prevalent in other parts of Canaan, but God didn't destroy those places. So what we know is there was an outcry and their sin grieved God. And that particular sin was part of all of their sin. But listen, do we think think that God is any less grieved by heterosexual sin? I don't think that he is. But we know there was this outcry and their sin grieved God. But why did pick... Why did God pick Sodom and Gomorrah over the others? Why did God pick Sodom and Gomorrah over the other places? To answer that, I'm going to quote Chase from last week. Now, Chase is out of town this week, and so don't tell him I, I don't want him getting cocky, all right, that I quoted him. But we don't really know. But in the Gospels, I want to take you to the Gospels. In the Gospels, Jesus healed people. And when he healed people, it was meant to be an inbreaking of his kingdom. A taste of what's to come. Ultimate healing and ultimate wholeness. So when Jesus healed people in the Gospels, it was an inbreaking of his kingdom meant to show us what's going to happen in the future kingdom. Why did God heal some people and not heal others? I don't know. In the Old Testament and New Testament, we see God, sometimes there'll be an inbreaking of God's judgment. We'll see stories like Genesis 19. We'll see stories like Ananias and Sapphira in in the book of Acts. 
There are times we see the, the inbreaking of God's judgment in the Bible, and it's also a taste of what's to come for those who are not in Christ and for those who refuse to turn from their sin and turn towards God. And I think we see that here. So why did God choose to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah but not other cities? We don't fully know, but the Bible does give us a little bit of clarity. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, looking at verse 6. I'll warn you, we're going to hear some disturbing things. You think that was disturbing? We're going to hear some disturbing things in 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, did you hear that? If he, if he, I almost can't read that. If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. What is Peter saying? I think he's showing us that Lot is a mixture a lot like you and I, where he's technically righteous. He's declared righteous by God. He is somehow saved. He's a believer. But man, there is some serious things. There are some serious things happening in his life that are sinful. And so his position is secure. He's, he's righteous in that sense, but, but man, his life is twisted up with some serious vice. And I think we see in that Second Peter passage, it says, he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. So just like you and I do today, is we look at our culture and we're greatly distressed about what we see. And then we walk away from that and go find our own ways to sin. In the same way that Lot did. And so we see this mixture in Lot's life. So why did God destroy Sodom? And it says here he made them an example. And this is not just a warning to those that are committing cultural sins, but to anyone who rejects the gospel. Do you know who Peter's talking about in this passage? This is actually a warning to false teachers in the church. He's saying that you're going to have the same consequences as Sodom and Gomorrah. And these are false teachers in the church in Matthew eleven twenty three, after Jesus has performed many miracles in Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin, and this is a place he's performed most of his miracles, and the Jewish people there don't turn and repent. And do you know what Jesus says to those people? He says, if these works had been done in Sodom, they would have repented. And who is he talking to? He's talking to the, the Jewish religious people. So Sodom and Gomorrah is absolutely a warning 
to the sins that we all think about, but it's also a warning to the religious, the prideful, the Pharisee-type person who thinks they don't need Jesus. So this story is about judgment, but it's also, it's also about rescue. It's also about God's grace in the midst of God's judgment. And you see, Peter, Peter calls Lot righteous. And we ask, well, how? After this story? I mean, wait till the end of the chapter. You'll see even worse. And I would tell you that if it wasn't for 2 Peter chapter 2, if someone said, do you think Lot is saved? I would say, I don't know about that. But because 2 Peter 2 tells us he is, then I have to say in faith, yeah, okay, I, I think he is because the Bible tells us he is. But if anything, this story should tell us, what does it mean that Lot was righteous? We don't become righteous by our behavior. If there's anything that you should be, have known, should learn by now in these, in these stories, it's this. We are not saved by our behavior. So how can Lot be called righteous? How are we, how, how does anyone become righteous? Well, Genesis 15, 6, how was Abraham declared righteous? It said he believed God and God credited to him as righteousness. In this story, Lot gets a warning and he at least responds to the warning. So there is some belief, there is some faith. The Bible calls him righteous. And we look at it and think, I think he might be hanging by a thread. But the Bible says he's righteous. How is he righteous? Well, because he believed the warning. And he believed in the promise of God. And as crazy as it sounds, I know that, that when we think of righteous, like how is he called righteous? Well, righteous doesn't mean perfect. Abraham wasn't perfect. Lot wasn't perfect. So the way that you and I become righteous is by believing the promises of God in faith. You see, we can find the gospel even in Genesis chapter 19. You see, Lot doesn't deserve rescue. He doesn't deserve to be called righteous, just like you and me. This whole scene in Genesis 19 is a picture of our salvation. You ever thought about what your life might look like apart from Jesus? I know most of us think, well, if I wasn't a Christian, I still wouldn't be that bad. I'm not so sure about that. You ever thought about what your life might look like apart from Jesus? If he hadn't saved you and plucked you out and rescued you? This whole story is a picture of our salvation. That Jesus offers me and you a rescue, a divine rescue. In spite of the fact that we don't deserve it, we don't deserve the rescue or the label righteous. So God offers that same rescue to, to you and me. It's not one that you and I deserve. And I know that some of you are, might be thinking, well, so I can live compromised to the culture, and in the end, God's going to save me? That sounds like a pretty good deal. But I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, Do not presume upon the grace of God, because his kindness should lead us to repentance. So God offers a rescue, but the flip side of that is a warning that God's going to judge sin. You know, people say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but what happened in Sodom will not stay in Sodom. 
God's going to judge all sin. And for those that are in Christ, he bears that judgment on himself at the cross. But for those who are not following Christ, they will bear the wrath of their own sin. Remember what happened a lot? Go back to the story. When he goes to his future sons-in-law, what's their, what is their response? They laugh. There's a lot of people laughing at God in Genesis. Abraham and Sarah laughed at God. Everyone laughed at Noah. These men, they're laughing at God, laughing at Lot. I think there might be some of us in the room right now that we're, we think we can toy with God. We think we can laugh at God. And he's not going to judge us. He's not going to judge our sin, but we are, we are literally playing with fire. You see, everyone is faith with, faced with a decision to turn to Christ in repentance or just blow it off, laugh it off like these men. And I know some of you might be saying, you know, I just can't believe in a God who would do something like that. I want to read to you from Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot. She says, if I dethrone God in my heart, I dethrone God in my heart, if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice, it's the same spirit that taunted, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross, but God is God. And if he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service, and I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. And if you sense the Holy Spirit just pressing down upon you right now, I'm going to have up here at the front some staff and elders and deacons, whoever might be able to make it down in a moment, and their wives. I want to encourage you that if the Holy Spirit is pressing down upon you right now, whether it be you're not yet a believer, and you sense this call from God that you need to step out in faith and turn your life over to him and let him be the king of your life. Maybe for you, it's a step of repentance and surrender as you come to know Christ for the first time today. I want to invite you to come down and pray with someone and tell God that. That's the desire of your heart. Maybe you're someone who, you're a Christian, you're righteous positionally like Lot, but you are just steeped in some sin in your life. You're struggling immensely and you just need to have someone pray for you and confess to someone and confess to God and begin that process of repentance this morning. So I'm going to pray, and if wherever you are, I want to just invite you to come down. We're not going to have a song. We're just going to dismiss and just come and pray if you need to continue and talk with someone as we pray together. God, we are thankful that you show us these hard stories that show us who you are. We, show, we know from these stories that you are right, you are just, you're a God that always does what is right, as hard as it might be to fathom. But God, we pray 
that your spirit will begin to press down upon us. If there are people in this room that don't yet know you, aren't following you, we pray that this morning is the, the day of salvation for them. They would come to know you today and surrender their lives to you. Knowing that you're a God of truth, knowing that you're a good God, you're a just God, and that you're a loving God. We also pray for those that are in the room that might know you, and they are truly righteous and declared righteous by you, but they're just struggling immensely with sinful patterns, sinful habits. And they're just so steeped in those things right now, God, that you would set them free. We pray they would cry out to you. We pray they would turn towards you and run to you as you call them to repentance today. God, I also pray for anyone in this room, as we've read a really disturbing passage, there are people, there are stories in this room that are unfathomable, things that have happened to them, things people have done to them. God, we pray that this morning does not do more damage to them. But you begin to heal them, Father, as they have suffered immensely in other ways. Can we pray that you would press down upon us the things that you want to press upon us in these next few moments, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.